open God's Word to Mark 10, verse 13 is where we're going to start. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. should be page 770 if you have a pew Bible. Mark 10 and 13 says, And they were bringing the children to Jesus so that he would touch them. The disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever has not received the kingdom of God like a child will not enter in at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. The title of the message this morning is Bring the Children to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Our Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to come and to study your word. We're thankful for your word that guides us, your spirit, which makes it living and active. And Father, we pray today your Holy Spirit would come and use your word to, to sanctify us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to, to do what needs to be done in our lives so that we could be better able to live out as live out our lives as fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Father, we want our lives to bring you glory. We want our lives to testify of you and in all we say and in all that we do. So speak to us through your word. Father, open our ears. Let us hear. Open our hearts. Let us receive. Let us be changed today because of what you're doing in us and through us and for us. Be glorified in all things we ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So look at verse 13. The parents will bring their children to Jesus. It was very common for parents to bring their children to respected Jewish rabbis so they could bless them. Uh, this blessing uh, was something that was basically dated back to the time of Jacob. When Jacob laid his hands on the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and blessed them. The, the, the parents in verse 13 are bringing their children to Jesus, a a now respected, well-known rabbi, so he can lay his hands upon them and he can and, and bless them in the name of Yahweh. Now, the lesson of the parents, or the example of the parents, is the lesson for us. Right? We we must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. The greatest good we could ever do for our children is to bring them to Jesus. Now. By our children, I'm not just talking about our personal children or our, our grandchildren. I'm talking about also the children of our church or the children in our community. Bringing children to Christ is the greatest thing we could ever do for them. It is one of the most important ministries of the church is to labor to bring children to Jesus. It must be something we give our all to accomplish. But... In trying to bring children to Jesus, there are always challenges. Look at verse 13 again. But the disciples rebuke them. So the parents are bringing their children, forming a line, and the disciples begin to turn them away and put a stop to it. And the reasoning, I'm sure, was to protect Jesus. Jesus was a busy man with stuff to do. Everywhere he went, crowds gathered around him. And the crowds were made up of sick people who needed to be healed, demonized people who needed to be set free, curious people who wanted to see what all of the fuss was about, truth seekers who wanted to know the truth, sinners who needed to know God loved them, and religious leaders who just wanted to argue with Jesus. Parents bringing their children to Jesus was just one more thing in an already crowded schedule. Besides, they were just children. 
that Jesus could not be bothered by the trivialities of children, I'm sure was a part of their mindset. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said, allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus was indignant what the disciples were doing. One of my commentaries said the word translated as indignant occurs only here in the New Testament and is a combination of two words, much and to grieve. Jesus was much grieved. Jesus was much grieved, angry even. The disciples trying to keep the children from him. He, he wanted them to come to him. He do not forbid them. He says, do not prevent them. Do not hinder them. Now, I'll go out on a limb and say that no one in here would do what the disciples did. No one in here would ever intentionally keep our kids or any kids from coming to Jesus. But the question we want to think through, is it possible we could do things unintentionally to keep kids, keep children from Jesus? And if it is possible, then we must conclude Jesus' response to this would be his response here. That he would be much grieved, indignant. And he would say to us, allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them. Jesus is much grieved what's done to keep children from him. Even if this is done intentionally, then we must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. We must seek to identify what things we could do unintentionally to hinder them from coming to Jesus. And we must undo that. So that it's not a hindrance. So I was studying the passage. There were several ways. We looked at, I think, three last week. I had several more. But I think they all could be summed up into one that we're going to talk about today. The final one. And I think all of the rest I had thought of would fall under this category. And that is honoring our children more than we honor Jesus. First Samuel 2, we're introduced to a couple of guys named Hopney and Phineas. Hopney and Phineas are priests and sons of the high priest Eli. In our first introduction to them, the King James Bible calls them sons of Belial, which basically means sons of the devil. Not a good introduction. They were called this because they were extremely wicked men. The evidence of them being sons of Belial was seen in their wicked actions. Actions like taking meat to be sacrificed to God and keeping it for themselves. Sleeping with women in the doorway to the tent of meeting. Now, to get how grievous that is. One, these women weren't their wives, so it's fornication, adultery. Two, it was somewhat, almost appears forced, like they were saying, I'm a priest, you're going to do what I say. Thirdly, the tent of meeting was like a tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. I mean, that would be like forcing women to have sex in the sanctuary on the stage. It, it was that much of an, uh, an affront to God is what they were doing. God's word tells us they did this because they did not know the Lord. Now, what makes them makes it so tragic that they didn't know the Lord is that they were raised by the high priest. 
And they were practically raised in the tabernacle. These weren't people from far away who didn't know God, who came in, applied, and got the job as priests. The earliest memories would have been in the tabernacle, in the service of God. They grew up in church. They grew up around the things of God, but yet they did not know God. And when they grew up, they began to be to do the work of priests because that was kind of the family business. People from that tribe became priests. But all that they did, all the sin, all of their wickedness was a result of them not knowing God. When I think of the sad story Hopney and Phineas, and look at the tragic verse. I'm sorry. What we have to learn from this, it's one, just because our, our kids are exposed to the things of God, doesn't mean they're going to end up knowing God. It is possible that our kids could be brought to church, exposed to the things of God from their youngest ages, and still end up not actually Knowing God. But there's some specific reason Hophni and Phinehas didn't. God's word tells us Eli had heard about everything his sons were doing. And he didn't do anything to stop them. Now once he talked with them and he asked them to stop. But that was it. They didn't stop. He didn't fire them as priests. He didn't do anything to keep them from their priestly service, despite the fact, as the high priest, he had the authority to do so. Why would Eli? Why would he allow? And and Eli knew the Lord. The Lord spoke to Eli. Why would someone who knew the Lord serve the Lord? Why would he allow his children to go on and, and act this way and do these things? We're given an answer. You may not be able to read that. My family makes fun of me for how many, how many, how much I put up on the screen, but I thought it'd be faster than turning there. It is 1 Samuel 2, verses 27 through 29. And it says, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in bondage at Pharaoh's house? Did not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me. Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the son of Israel? Why are you showing contempt for my sacrifices and my offering, which I have commanded from my dwelling? And why are you honoring your sons above me? By making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people, Israel. God reminds Eli that his family had been chosen by God to do the work of priests and to be the high priests. So God asked Eli, why are you showing contempt? Right, That's what it says. Why are you showing contempt for my sacrifices? Now, the omniscient Google defines contempt as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration. It's worthless or deserving scorn. Now, Eli's actions. Of allowing his sons to do what they were doing. It showed contempt for God's sacrifices. 
It showed that God and the things of God were beneath consideration. They were less important. They were worthless. And the fact they would deserve scorn. His actions of allowing his children to continue as priests, despite knowing what they did, showed contempt for God and the things of God. Eli would not discipline his sons and he would not make them stop their actions. And God interpreted these actions as Eli honoring his sons above God. Now, you can see I've, I put it in red. That's not my interpretation of what God says. That is literally what God said. God said that by allowing his tids to continue, doing nothing to restrain them and what they were doing, acting like everything was okay. He was honoring his children more than he was honoring God. Now, in this, I think we could guess what the primary object of devotion was in Eli's life. It was his children. It was Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Eli probably would not have said it that way. That is the point God's making in that passage. By allowing his children to run wild, violate God's law without disciplining them, without stopping them when he had the power to do so. Eli showed he was more devoted to his son's happiness, to their wants and their desires, than he was to what God wanted and what God desired. Now, the tragic result of Eli's decision is not seen until later, as both Hopney and Phineas were judged by God and killed for their wickedness, because they were indeed sons of Belial. They'd been led to believe, they'd been raised to believe that their happiness, their desires, their wants were more important than anything else. So if they wanted something, they took it, no matter how sinful this was. They wanted an offering that was brought to the Lord, they took it. And they ate it for themselves rather than offering it to God. They saw a woman who came to make her sacrifice, they wanted, they took her. Regardless of whether or not she had a husband or anything else because they wanted her. And in their minds, they probably didn't see a whole lot wrong with it because they had been raised to believe their wants and their desires were preeminent. And so God judged them for their sinful actions. The tragedy of Hophni and Phinehas is the way they lived their lives was merely a reflection of the way their dad lived his. Eli made Hophni and Phinehas' happiness, wants, and desires the focus of his life. And so naturally, so did they. In the end, it cost them eternally. Now, honoring children over Jesus is very common in our day. Like Eli, no one would say it that way. But it's seen through the actions. Think of the number of professing Christians who say they cannot be faithful in their service and devotion to Jesus because they're far too busy with their children's activities. Their children are involved in 43 extracurricular activities and something has to give. And when there's a conflict, what gives? Is it one of the 43 extracurricular activities or is it faithfulness and service and devotion to Jesus? Well, tragically... More often than not, it is faithfulness in service and devotion to Jesus. Why? 
Because what their children want, what their children desire, is more important than what Jesus wants and what Jesus desires. Think of the number of professing Christians who allow their children to decide whether or not they'll attend church or be faithful in the youth programs. The reason typically given is we don't want them to have to come to church. We want them to want to come to church. But is that approach taken with other things? I don't want my kids to feel like they have to go to school. I want them to want to go to school so they can choose whether they go or not. Well, I don't want my kids to feel like they have to go to the doctor. I I want them to want to go to the doctor so I'm not going to make them go. Well, I want my kids to to want to go to the dentist, not feel like they have to go to the dentist. So I'm not going to make them go. No. Typically, church, things of God is the only thing where this option and this mindset is adopted. And it's because they see those other things as necessities, but they do see church as optional. They see things this way because what their children want and what their children desire is more important than what Jesus wants and what Jesus desires. Or think of the number of professing Christians who tolerate or in some cases even affirm some sort of immorality their children are taking part in. Sometimes they they tolerate or affirm it because kids are going to be kids. Other times they tolerate or affirm it because their kids were born this way and love is love. Whatever the reason given, the root of the decision is the same. What their children want and what their children desire is more important than what Jesus wants and what Jesus desires. Or think of the number of professing Christians who seek to talk their children out of serving Jesus. I'm going to think of several examples of this. A mother who didn't want her teenage daughter to get so carried away in following Jesus, she didn't go to parties and and do the things teenagers do in their teenage years. Telling her, kids ought to be kids. Don't waste your teenage years. Jesus will forgive you if it's a sin. Or parents whose children felt called into the ministry. And the parent tried to talk them out of it because ministry would be hard. It could be dangerous or they just wouldn't make much money. In this case, the parents are putting their wants and their desires for their children over Jesus' wants and Jesus' desires for their children. But it's still the same thing. It is still honoring the children more than they honor Jesus. Putting the wants and the desires of our children over the wants and the desires of Jesus demonstrates that we are honoring our children more than we are honoring Jesus. This is a sure way not to only keep them from Jesus, but to turn them into children of Belial. So what must we do to bring children to Jesus rather than unintentionally keep them from Jesus? We must ensure Jesus is the primary object devotion in our lives. God's word is clear. Jesus is meant to be first. He he demands primary allegiance. Nothing. Not not family. Not friends. Not social functions. Not not finances. Nothing is meant to be put before faithfulness and our service and our devotion 
to Jesus. Now, again, this isn't my idea. Look at what Jesus explicitly said. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And the one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. And these words would have been strange to Jesus' original hearers. Jewish people were very, very family oriented. In their minds, one of the greatest things you could do was to love and serve your family. Most religious teachers demanded a level of devotion and faithfulness to those who followed them. But none would have dared tell a student they should be more devoted to them than they were to their families. According to Jewish understanding of the law, there was only one who had the right to demand greater devotion than family. There was only one who was worthy of more devotion than family. That one was, of course, Yahweh. Jesus, in this place and in many others, says he deserves and he demands that same level of devotion. Now, the idea of being more devoted to Jesus than we are to our families is probably as odd-sounding to us as it was to the original hearers. Yet clearly, this is what Jesus expects. This is what Jesus demands. This is even what Jesus deserves. And in fact, according to the way it's worded here in other places, this is all Jesus will accept. In other passages like this, Jesus literally says we cannot be his disciples if there are any rivals to our devotion to him. As a husband, as a dad, I found the greatest rival to my devotion to Jesus is my family. But I cannot allow myself to be more devoted to my family than I am to Jesus. We, we must constantly ensure we are more devoted to Jesus than we are to anything else in the world, even our families. But a legitimate question we could ask is why? Why does Jesus expect us to be more devoted to him than we are to our families? To answer this, we have to remind ourselves who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just a religious teacher. He wasn't just a prophet or a miracle worker or a guy who lived. He was all of those things and more. In John chapter 12, we're told Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 was a vision of Jesus in all of his glory. So high and lifted up, throne of his temple, throne of his tra- the train of his robe went around the temple, angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. That's Jesus in all of his glory. When we see Jesus again, that's what he will be like. The Gospel of John, the books of Colossians and Hebrews tell us Jesus is the one who created all things. So Jesus... The great and glorious creator of all things. He willingly cast off his glory and came to earth as a human. He lived a perfect sinless life. He did amazing miracles. And his teaching astounded everyone from the common people to the deep theologians. Then after 33 years of life, he was betrayed by one of his disciples 
And he was brutally murdered on a Roman cross. Yet the cross was not a surprise. The cross was the entire reason Jesus came. Jesus did not come just to give us an example. Or teaching. Or to show us to be kind. Or to love one another. Jesus came for the explicit purpose of being crucified for our sins. The Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And after fully taking God's wrath in our place for our sins, he died. And he was laid in a tomb for three days. And after three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Now, because of his sinless life, his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, we can be forgiven for our sins and have the hope of eternal life. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did. I love my wife and I love my daughters. And there is very little in life I would rather do than be with my family. But as wonderful as they are, they are not Jesus. They did not die for my sins and rise for my salvation. They do not make it possible for me to have eternal life. They do not make me connected to God. They do not give me hope for this life and hope for the life to come. Only Jesus does that. Jesus is worthy of our full and complete devotion to him. No one else, not even our families, come close to being as worthy of our devotion as Jesus, as Jesus does. But again, let me, let me be clear. There is nothing better we can do for our children, for our families, than become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Some fear of being fully devoted disciples of Jesus means we'll neglect our families. That is not and cannot remotely be the case. If I am a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, I will love Kelly like Jesus loves the church. I cannot love Kelly the way Jesus expects if I am fully devoted to anything but Jesus, even if the other thing I'm devoted to is her. To love my daughters like Jesus has loved me requires me to be fully devoted to him. If I am devoted to anything but Jesus, I will not love them in that way, even if the thing I'm devoted to is them. They, they need us to be fully devoted to Jesus. That is the best thing we can do. And finally, I mean, let's Learn a lesson from the example of Eli. Our children cannot bear the weight of our worship. When they are the primary object of our devotion, it destroys them. As it destroyed Hopni and Phineas. Now, clearly, Hopni and Phineas made decisions. And those decisions turned them into sons of Belial. But Eli... Honoring them over God aided them in making the decisions they made. Eli bears some responsibility for his children becoming sons of Belial because he honored them over God. And in so doing, he taught them 
Their desires, their wants were far more important than God's desires and God's wants. They elevated themselves over God because they had been raised by Eli with him elevating them over God. They did what they had naturally been raised to do. Now, not every child who grows up to become a son or daughter of Belial was the primary object of their parents' devotions. Children make decisions. And those decisions lead them to become sons and daughters of Belial. However, I would say every child who is the primary object of their parents' devotion does grow up to become a son or a daughter of Belial. And they do this because they are raised from an early age and taught over and over again. Their wants and their desires are more important than Jesus' wants and Jesus' desires. This results in them elevating themselves over Jesus because all of their lives, their parents have elevated them over Jesus. Our children are precious. Our children are a blessing from the Lord. Our children are not worthy of being the primary object of our devotion. And if we make them the primary object of our devotion, it destroys their souls. We must do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. And this includes ensuring Jesus is the primary object of our devotion. Now, there are several ways we could respond to the message this morning. Perhaps you have been honoring your children and putting their wants and their wishes more than you've been honoring Jesus and His wants and His wishes. If this is the case, you must repent of that sin. And you must recommit yourself to ensuring Jesus is the primary object of devotion in your life. Perhaps you don't have children. But you just realize Jesus hasn't been the primary object of devotion in your life. You've made other things preeminent. If this is the case, you must repent of that and recommit yourself to ensuring Jesus is the primary object of devotion to your life. Perhaps you feel a great burden for the children of our church or the children in your family to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. This is a time to pray for Jesus to save them and sanctify them. And then perhaps you've never just personally embraced Jesus through repentance and faith. This is the time for you to repent of your sins and believe the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's stand.